Good morning once again. If you turn with me to the Gospel of Mark as we continue in our Rediscovering Jesus series, turn with me to Mark chapter 3, and we're going to look at Mark 3, verses 19, or I'm sorry, 20 through 35, the end of Mark chapter 3. Uh, so Mark 3, 20 through the end of that chapter, uh, 35. And uh, let me read God's Word to us this morning, uh, and then uh, I'll pray for us. So this is God's Word. Hear now God's Word. Mark 3. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And this is Jesus and his disciples going back to his hometown of Capernaum. And when his family heard it that they had come back, they went out to seize him for they were saying that Jesus is out of his mind. He's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called to him called to them and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. He he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you all, all sins will be forgiven. The children of man and whatever whatever blasphemies, blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called to him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mothers and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mothers and my brothers. Who, who, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. We pray this morning <clears throat> by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would help apply the truth of the word to our hearts this morning. So, Lord, give us grace and give us wisdom. Open the eyes of our hearts and minds to receive the good news of the gospel. And uh, we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, years ago, when movies only cost $2.50, you all remember that? Well, some of you all probably don't. You can actually go to the Fandango.com website and look up the cost of movies way back even to, to, you know, the 50s and 60s. But in 1980, when I was 10 years old, movies cost $2.50 pretty good deal. I grew up pretty near a mall, and so I used to ride my Huffy Pro Thunder over to the mall and spend $2.50 in a summer movie, and I would go with my friends, and we would ride bikes over to see the movies, and there was only about four, maybe four movie theaters in the Richland Mall Theater, and we would drive over there. We'd go to Mr. Popper's first and get caramel popcorn, and then we'd sneak it into the movie theater. I don't know how we did that with shorts and a t-shirt, but somehow we'd sneak in popcorn because we were too cheap to pay for it at the theater. And then we would go, and what we would try to do is try to watch more than one movie at one time. So we would go and sit in the theater for a little while and watch one, and then try to sneak past the ushers and go into another movie theater and and watch another movie. So it's kind of like, you know, how you flip TV and you try to watch, I don't know, women, you probably don't do this, but men, I mean, I try to watch like five shows at a time. I don't know why that is. But when I was a kid, you know, I was trying to catch more than, than one movie at a time for the price of one. And I still do that today when I watch TV. I'll try to watch five shows at a time. And in some ways, that's what the gospel writer Mark 
is doing for us this morning. You know, like our televisions today, you know, back when I was a kid, we had the big uh, console TVs. You remember those wood TVs that probably weighed like 300 pounds? Well, you know, didn't have the picture-in-picture picture thing. What today, you know, you can watch one football game and then have the little smaller picture in the corner and you can watch a completely different game. Love that. And that's kind of what Mark's doing here this morning. He's given us this picture within a picture, if you will, a split-screen view, if you will, of our story this morning. Uh, another biblical term is it's a sandwich. And, and some commentators call it a Markin sandwich. So there you go. You've learned a new term, Markin sandwich. And here's what it looks like. You've got two similar stories, right? Those are the pieces of bread. And then in the middle, the meat, you've got a whole kind of different story. And that's kind of what's going on here when we read because you see the first story and then the third story deal with Jesus and his family, right? And then the, the second story is a completely different story about uh, Jesus and his interactions with the religious leaders or the Pharisees. So I'm going to decide to do this more in like a scene though. And, and Mark essentially gives us two scenes here. And scene one is Jesus with his family. And this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that we're introduced to Jesus' family, right? And it's not necessarily a very gracious or positive introduction to his family, is it? But what does Mark tell us that his family tries to do? That Jesus' mother and his brothers are coming to try to interrupt Jesus because they're worried about his health, perhaps. Maybe they're worried about his schedule. Maybe it's because his popularity is swelling so much within that region. And we've seen, even in the last few weeks, have the crowds just been inundating Jesus? Absolutely. And in fact, last week we saw that the crowds were so great, they were pressing in on Jesus so much that he asked his disciples to get a boat ready just in case he needed a means of escape because it was so dangerous. Same kind of picture here. Once again, he comes back to his hometown. He begins to teach. He begins to heal, and the crowds swell. And then Mark tells us that they were so, the crowds were so big that Jesus and his disciples didn't even have any room to eat. That's how many people were surrounding him. So Mark, uh, Jesus' family comes in, as it says his mother, uh, his family comes in and tries to rescue Jesus. Mark says uh, in, in the verse here, what does it say in verse 20? He says, or 21, and when his family heard about Jesus coming into town, they went out to seize him. And that word means to control him. In fact, that word is used, the same word is used when troops come to seize Jesus. So it's like they want to grab Jesus. They want to kidnap him. They want to control him in his movements and his schedule. And so his family is coming. They're concerned for his welfare. And then Mark says that they thought his family thought Jesus was crazy. Notice what he says there. And his family, they went to seize him, for they were saying, what? He is out of his mind. That's literally translated that he was crazy. His family thought he was crazy that he had lost his senses. So that's the first scene that Mark sets up for us. And then he kind of continues that scene after the second story. The second scene Mark focuses on is the religious leaders in Jerusalem. He comes back to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And they contrast to Mark's family who was concerned about Jesus and his welfare, the religious leaders were not concerned about Jesus and his welfare. Matter of fact, they, as we saw earlier on a few weeks ago, they were conspiring with the Herodians, people that they were completely separate from, on how to kill Jesus, right? So they weren't concerned about the welfare of Jesus, but the religious leaders were concerned about their understanding of God and their understanding of religion. And so they had come back to Capernaum in order to spread this vicious rumor that people were being seduced by Jesus. 
they spread this rumor that Jesus uh, was exercising demons, that he was delivering people from demonic oppression or demonic possession. And the reason or the, the way that he was able to do that was because he was possessed himself. That's what the religious leaders were saying about Jesus. But just to help you understand that, that was a very serious, very serious grave accusation they were leveling, a very grave charge that they were leveling against Jesus. If you were to think about that in maybe today's times, someone who maybe has been accused of becoming a, a, being a sexual predator, you know, even if that person is completely innocent of those charges, completely innocent of that accusation, the fact that that person has been accused of that will stick with them the rest of your life. That's how serious this was. That's the level of seriousness of this. So they accused Jesus blaspheming. They accused Jesus of being perhaps possessed by the prince of demons himself, and that was the way that he had the power to deliver people from, from demonic oppression or possession. Now, why this parallel? Why does set, Mark set up this, these two scenes, these parallels for us? Well, if you like literature, I, li- I like to read, you'll notice that it's a great tool that many writers use, the power of parallel stories. We have two kind of coinciding stories that sometimes take different tangents and then they come back together again and that's what Mark's doing he's using this power of parallel stories this literary device to combine two stories together to enhance the character to enrich our understanding of of the character and in this case that's Jesus so he gives us these parallel stories here so that we'll see that there are only a few possible interpretations as you read this passage Mark's trying to narrow your attention down he's trying to bring you from the top of the funnel down and Mark's saying I'm going to bring you down so that you really only have a few choices here or interpretations about who Jesus is that Jesus is either crazy right because his family thought he was crazy didn't they so Jesus is either is either crazy and that was his own family's view or according to the religious leaders in their view Jesus was what he was bad he was evil and that would be the 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 Pharisees or the religious leaders view or Mark is trying to bring it down to a pinpoint funnel part here, or he is who he claims to be, that he is indeed the divine son of God. And that's Mark's view. So we're going to look at Mark's cue here to these scenes. And let's, instead of looking at the first story and the third story of the, of the family of Jesus, let's look at the second story. And we'll have a little bit of time to get to the, to the other scene of, with Jesus and his family. But, but really, Mark's trying to draw our attention to the, to the second story here with Jesus and the, the religious leaders. So let's focus on this story or this scene, and then let's look at the powerful response that Jesus gives to these guys. And then we'll get back to Jesus and his family. So let's look at the religious leaders' view that they thought Jesus was bad, they thought Jesus was evil. Look at what they say. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebub. Some of your versions say Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So here the religious leaders are spreading two rumors that Jesus is seducing the city of Capernaum. The first rumor is this, that they say that Jesus, he must be possessed by Beelzebub. Now why was this so serious? Why was this so grave, this charge that they were leveling against him? Well, the Jews and the non-Jews alike who would have read Mark would have totally understood this, that they would have been very alarmed that someone as popular as Jesus would have been flirting around with evil spirits or especially a name like Beelzebub. In fact, Beelzebub was known as the Lord of the evil spirits. So the religious leaders were essentially saying that Jesus, don't trust him because he's possessed 
by some kind of demon, perhaps Beelzebub himself, and that is what is giving him power to rule over the evil spirits. So that was their first accusation, that he was possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of the dark world or the prince of the evil spirits. And then the second charge that was even graver than the first was this. But by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So not only are they accusing Jesus of being possessed himself, but by them saying he casts out demons by the prince of demons, here's what they were saying, that he was the son of Satan himself. You can imagine that. I I mean, I would love to have been a fly on the wall to see Jesus when he heard that. Man, I would not have wanted to have been there. That would have been a powerful scene. So they're saying that they're giving this huge religious smear, this huge societal smear on Jesus and saying, and they're trying their best to reduce Jesus and to attack his reputation so that everybody will think that he is now a sorcerer who is practicing black magic. In some ways, I can understand the Pharisees' reasoning in some little way because they did believe that Jesus had the power to do uh, exorcisms. They had, they did, they had witnessed it themselves. And there are, there are many even extra-biblical accounts uh, that give us a historical fact that Jesus was able to do exorcisms, was able to rid folks of demonic oppression. So the religious leaders, Pharisees, they weren't denying Jesus' power. Uh, in fact, in Matthew's parallel account of this story, if you read it to Matthew, uh, Jesus, right before this happened in Matthew's parallel account, Jesus had just exercised uh, an evil spirit from this blind and deaf guy, and he was healed, and the witness uh, uh, the religious leaders witnessed this and it enraged them. So why were they so upset? Why couldn't they accept that Jesus' power was coming from God? Well, their logic was skewed. They didn't understand that, they didn't think that their understanding of God and His glory, they didn't think that God could somehow be subject or not subject, somehow be connected to demonic spirits whatsoever. So to them, the fact that Jesus is saying He was from God and that He was God's glory revealed and then somehow being able to cast out demons. Pharisees didn't want to deal with that. Religious leaders didn't want to deal with that. They had this skewed logic that they believed that if you're going to have the power to deliver somebody from demons, then you must have demonic influence yourself. That's kind of what their understanding was. So what was Jesus' response to their charge that they leveled against him? Look at verse 23, the end of 23. He says, first of all, Jesus refutes him. Look what he says. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. And notice something subtle here. We'll we'll see this in a minute. The, The religious leaders say that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub, right? When Jesus responds, notice he doesn't use the name Beelzebub. He says what? How can Satan cast out Satan? Now that's subtle, and we'll see here in a minute why that's important, but he responds back to the religious leaders and changes the name from Beelzebub to Satan. And we'll see that in a minute. So Jesus was saying, guys, your logic, it it stinks. Your logic is faulty. And, And in this situation, Jesus just owns these guys in his response. He says, if I am possessed by Satan, how can I drive myself out of myself? That's essentially what he's saying. If I'm possessed by the enemy, the prince of demons, how can I drive myself out of myself? How could Satan drive out Satan? No kingdom, he says, which is at war with itself can possibly stand and survive and thrive if it's attacking itself. So if I am Satan and and I am opposing myself, then that means that the end of Satan and his kingdom has come. 
That's not what he's saying. He's saying when, when Jesus replied back, he's saying, I am not Satan. I am not possessed. I am not himself. Because if I do that, his, his kingdom falls apart. So he just exposes their faulty logic. He's making it clear that the powers of darkness, Satan and his kingdom, has not ended. His reign and his rule and his power and his attacking of God's kingdom has not yet ended. Uh, Jesus is telling us that the devil is still alive and kicking, if you will. And then Jesus, once he does this, once again, he tells us, and in, in re- revealing this, that uh, he is not indeed possessed, but he is on a different mission by revealing this Jesus once again is giving them a true explanation of his mission and his ministry he's saying I have come to destroy the strong man and his works look what he says in verse 27 but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may may plunder his house now what does Jesus mean here and this is so encouraging folks First of all, when he says strong man, what is strong man? Who is the strong man in this story? Well, strong man is Satan in his kingdom. Well, what does he mean when he says strong man's goods or the strong man's possessions? What is he referring to? He's referring to you. That he's saying that you, apart from Christ, are the strong man's possessions, if you will. The Greek word possession literally means stuff or instruments or utensils. So Jesus is saying, listen, I am not Satan. he can't be divided and then conquer himself. And no, I don't work for him, but he exists. He's real, and he exists to destroy lives. And he is saying, I am utterly contrary to that. I have come to bust into his kingdom. I have come to break down his door, if you will. I have come to hog tie him. It says to tie the strong man or to defeat the strong man. Literally means to tie him up, to hog tie him up. And then to plunder his goods, rob his house of everything that he has, and leave him for dead. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, that is my mission. I have come to deliver uh, the world from the influence and the reign of Satan and his kingdom. In fact, in Luke chapter 10, if you'll remember this, when Jesus sends out uh, his disciples and others, the 72, he sent out 72 people to do ministry. He equipped them, he had ordained them, he had empowered them with certain powers, even to deliver demons. And those 72 men went out, and they did ministry, and they did, in fact, deliver folks from uh, demons, demonic possession or oppression. And they came back to Jesus. They were all excited, right? They came back to Jesus in Luke 10, and they said, "Uh, Jesus, even the demons, we couldn't believe it, even the demons were subject to us in your name. And then what did Jesus say? This is astounding what he says. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In other words, what he's saying is, yeah, I know, that was pretty amazing, wasn't it? Guess what? I was there before the creation of the world, and I saw Satan himself fall from God's grace. That's astounding that Jesus himself witnessed that. I saw, I saw Satan himself fall like lightning uh, from heaven. And he, he is saying that before the earth was created, yeah, I was there, I, I saw that. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I was there, I saw that. That's what he's saying. Yeah, I was there, guys. I saw him fall from God's late favor. I saw him fall from God's love. I saw him cast into eternal hell and torment. I saw the jealousy and hatred in his eyes. I saw and knew that he would be hell-bent on vengeance, trying to wreak havoc with my father's plans. But it's just a matter of time, boys. I could almost see him saying that. It's just a matter of time, boys, because I have come to plunder the strong man's house. 
I have come to tie him up and rob all of his possessions and leave him for dead. So Jesus is explaining that this is exactly what he has come to do, to destroy the influence of the strong man, Satan, on people's lives and to restore them to family fellowship with God. Think about this. That's exactly how Satan has been working ever since his fall, fall from heaven, isn't it? <clears throat> Sorry, I've got a <clears throat> real dry throat today. Mark has done a good job of showing us, and we've seen this in other sermons, that he's constantly taking us back to the book of Genesis. Think about this in the book of Genesis. Uh, what was going on in the book of Genesis before the fall of mankind, before sin entered the picture? God had created Adam and Eve. He created them to be in community and in perfect intimacy and in perfect rest with him. Their identity, identity was sure. They, they didn't struggle with insecurities, right? Uh, scripture says that they were able to be naked in front of each other and there was no shame, right? They were good. They enjoyed that fellowship. They enjoyed that intimacy with one another and with God, that fellowship. But then what did Satan do? What did the, the, uh, the devil do? He came and he began to deceive Adam and Eve, didn't he? What was the great lie that Satan told Adam and Eve? What, what was it that he was trying to get them to doubt? You remember this? I think there are several things that he tried to get them to doubt. One, he tried to get them to doubt the fatherhood of God. He's not really a good father to you. Don't believe that. I know he says that he is. I know he's provided for you. He cares for you. You know him and he knows you. But he's not. He's not a good father. That's one of the doubts that he began to plant in Eve's mind. Another one, he began to doubt, make them make her doubt, and even Adam doubt that he would care for them, that he would continue to care for them. He began to make them instead believe that independence from God and self-dependence was better for them. He began to give them the lie that, hey, listen, God has shorted you. He hasn't given you everything. He, he, you've got the Garden of Eden, and it's good, it's beautiful. You have creation, you have the world, it's good and it's beautiful, but God's holding out on you. He shorted you one thing, the tree of life. Why would he do that? Why would he short you? He hasn't given you everything you deserve. You deserve. You can be just like him. Instead of enjoying your father, Adam and Eve, why don't you kill him off and you be the father? You be God. That's the lie of the enemy. That's the lie that he comes after us again and again trying to make us doubt God's goodness, the fatherhood of God, the grace of God. He makes us try to doubt that God does care for us that he does love, love us. He fans into a flame our flesh to make us think that independence and self-dependence really is the route to go. You begin to see that the strong man really does have possession of our world, doesn't he, in many ways. It's not his world. It's our father's world, right? But he's still wreaking havoc, and he is still trying his hardest to keep his claws and paws on things in our creation and our world. Jesus has come to restore and repair the damage done here. And that's what he's saying his mission, mission is. You remember in Genesis 3.15 when, when uh, God said, after the fall, he said to Adam and Eve, he said that he shall bruise your head, the, uh, Satan, the serpent, shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. And what is he talking about there? That the certain serpent will bruise your head, uh, but you shall bruise his heel. After the fall, God gives this promise that one would come who would heal the world, the one who would come, and he's really referring to Jesus. In fact, this is the first mention of the gospel in the Bible, Genesis 3.15. And God says here that there is one coming, a Savior who is coming, who will crush the head of the enemy. And, his, and in turn, in doing that, his uh, heel will be bruised, 
but it will just be a bruise, but the head of the enemy will be crushed. And this is the first promise in the Bible that a Savior was coming, that Jesus would be the one to destroy Satan and his works. And we see this best, right, when we see the cross, what Jesus did on the cross, that he died on the cross to take our sins. He died on the cross to take the penalty of death that we deserve, that he defeated sin and death himself, and he rose from the dead, and he liberated us. That's good news. I love what 1 John says. 1 John 3 says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then get what he says here. John says, the reason the Son of God has appeared, Jesus proclaiming his mission that we see in Mark 3 this morning, that he has come to tie up the strong man. Listen to what John says about this mission. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That gives us great comfort. Folks, that is incredibly comforting. You have an enemy of your soul. If you are in Christ this morning, there is one who is actively trying to engage you to make you doubt. There is one who is actively trying to engage you to be uh, saddened and to be anxious and to be fearful. He is actively opposing God and his kingdom. But yet, John tells us, Jesus tells us that the reason he has come is to destroy the works of the devil. And that gives us great comfort that Jesus indeed is crushing Satan's head, that he is plundering his house, he has tied him up, and God wins. You want, you, know how, you want to know how to sum up the book of Revelation, which is a wonderful extended picture of Jesus crushing the serpent's head. There's a real simple outline you can memorize and, uh, memorizing how to uh, give an outline of the book of Revelation. It's two words. God wins. God wins. That Jesus has indeed come to plunder the strong man's house. He goes on to say, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. So he follows up this teaching about him coming in and plundering the strong man's house, his response to the religious leaders. And he follows that teaching up with this practical application. And what he says here is very somber and very serious. We need to hear this. Verse 28 and following, he says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Now first things here we need to see, these are precious words from Jesus. Notice what he says, that all sins, all types of sin, every kind of sin that you can imagine across all the spectrum of time and sin and, and the world, even blasphemies that people utter, Jesus says what? Can be and will be forgiven. Y'all, that, don't, don't skip over that. Awaken, wellspring. All of your sins can be forgiven. Amazing. You can be forgiven. And, and no matter what sins, that you, and the worst ones that you can think that you've done or the worst ones that you know that you've done and that you harbor in your heart and guilt and in shame can be washed away and forgiven, he says. All types of sin can be forgiven. But Jesus does say that there is one sin that places man beyond forgiveness. And Jesus tells us that that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm sure that you've probably read this before, you've heard this before, and it's forced you to ask the question, I myself have asked this question, have I committed the unpardonable sin? You ever wondered that before? I have. And you read this and you wonder, have I done this? I hope not. And it brings and produces a lot of anxiety and fear. And this is not a trivial question, folks. Hear this, look up and see this. This is not 
a trivial question. In fact, I think that Jesus seems to suggest that this is perhaps one of the most important questions you can ever ask yourself. So what is he talking about here when he says blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and have I committed it? Well, Mark, first he gives us this practical explanation. The reason Jesus said said this was in response to what the religious leaders had said about him, that he had an evil spirit. And Mark gives us this commentary that the reason he said this is because the Pharisees, the religious leaders had said he had an evil spirit possessing him. So he counters their accusation with this very grave and serious truth, but his answer wasn't just for the religious leaders in the story. His answer is for us today as well. It's for us. And you see that there is one certain way you can know that someone is in the grave danger of committing this sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. When someone has such a stubborn resistance to Jesus, Jesus, which eventually begins to play itself out in their life, that instead of Jesus being their ultimate good, they instead see Jesus as being their ultimate evil in life. That's how you begin to see the sin of blasphemy being played out in somebody's life. That they are, instead of seeing Jesus as their ultimate good, they instead see Jesus as the ultimate evil in your life. So if you are someone, uh, you might think maybe you've committed blasphemy or you know someone that you think maybe they've committed blasphemy and you wonder uh, if you... If you're someone who thinks the people who are converted to Jesus, right, and they, they're in this personal relationship with him and they're living obedient lives and following Jesus and delighting in him and, and yet that begins to fade and then you begin to, to move to this place of thinking that this is just foolishness and idiocy, then you are in grave danger, my friends. You're in a perilous position and I urge you to ask the Lord to help you move from the grip of the strong man and investigate the claims of Jesus and come to him. Because Jesus is saying that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a conscious and willful rejection of the saving power and grace of God. It is a conscious and willful rejection of God's saving grace and his power towards you. And if you're there, let me warn you folks, it's a real deal. And you are setting yourself up against forgiveness, ultimate forgiveness and rest. And you're setting yourself up against God wanting to love you again and again. But if you're consciously resisting his love, you're consciously resisting his grace, that is a dangerous place to be indeed. And eventually, your heart will become harder and harder and harder. And eventually, he will allow you to be excluded from it, if you will. C.S. Lewis has a great quote in this in his book, The Four Loves. And he said this about, about this. I think it can connect to it. He says, to love, to love at all is to be vulnerable, he says. Love anything with your heart and it will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal, he says. Wrap your heart carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock your heart up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will change, he says. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable, he says. That's astounding. So when he says sin, uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, he is saying conscious and willful rejection of God's love, conscious and willful rejection of God's grace. But let me give you a comfort here. And then I also want to give you a warning. The comfort is this. I know many of us have had fear and anxiety as we've read this and we've thought about this 
Maybe you're newly following Jesus and then you came across this verse and you think, have I committed blasphemy? You know, I've, I've cussed, I've used God's name in vain, I've, I've sinned publicly, I've denied Jesus by my lifestyle. But here's the thing, if there is even a smidgen of anxiety in your heart that you've committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, then that means you haven't committed it. Do you, do you get that? If there is any, even, even a smidgen of anxiety that, oh my gosh, have I committed then you hadn't committed because blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is willful, conscious rejection. It's a dead heart. You don't care. I don't care if I, I don't care about God. I don't care about His goodness. I don't need His grace. Who needs His forgiveness? That's blasphemy. But if there is any anxiety that you might have committed it against the Holy Spirit, you don't need to be anxious because the blasphemy that Jesus is talking about here is always accompanied by a complete indifference to that. It's a complete indifference to God. It's a complete indifference to that, even to that particular sin. The fact that you're anxious means that you haven't committed it. You wouldn't care because otherwise your heart would be hardened to the gospel. Your heart would be hardened to God's infinite grace and mercy. And that's comforting. But I need to give you a warning because it, it's not just a comfort and I wouldn't be loving you well if I didn't give you a warning. There is a warning here. There is a warning for us. We can't treat this truth lightly. You know, we can breathe a sigh of relief and go, okay, whew, there's anxiety in my heart. Okay, God, I know that I need you and I know I've blown it. And that's a comfort, right? But if you go on living in disobedience, you go on living in active rebellion against the Lord. And even though you might have a tinge of conscience or guilt or anxiety that you've committed it and, 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 and you come back to his forgiveness, but you continue to live in active rebellion and disobedience to the Lord, that sensitivity that you might have first had when you became a believer, or that sensitivity that you thought you had begins to wane and it begins to diminish. And someone who becomes very sensitive to sinning against the Lord, that sensitivity begins to diminish over time and eventually you become indifferent to it and your heart can become hardened and that's a scary place to be. You can't ever be outside of the fellowship of God. If He has indeed called you and He has drawn you to Himself, you are in Christ. You cannot outsin God in His grace. He loves you. But you can certainly, in some ways, get out of fellowship with Him. He's there and He still loves you, but you certainly will feel out of fellowship and your life will be miserable. And that is a fearful place to be. And it's absolutely vital for us to have a sensitive heart. And God, in His pursuing grace and love for you, is so great that Paul even says that God will sometimes turn people over to sin for a time. And that's a hard thing to swallow. But he does that. He does that because he wants to be the supreme value in that person's life. And sometimes people have to go down a trail. They have to go down a path of misery after misery after misery after misery after misery until they come to a place where they have no other place to turn but to the kindness of God the Father himself. So it's vital for us to have a sensitive heart to the Holy Spirit. Isaiah says this, that a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench, he says. It's vital for us to keep close to Jesus. And even if you feel like your faith and your trust in Jesus is like a smoldering wick, that's okay. You cannot fan yourself into a flame, but he can fan you back into a flame. His love for you can fan you back into a flame if you would take your sinful and your wounded heart back to Jesus. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. And then get what he says here. Hold fast to what is good, Paul says. Hold fast to the gospel. Cling to it. The Greek there is to cling to it. Like, 
You, it's a death grip that you cannot be pried away. You ever see that bumper sticker? You know, you'll, the only way you can get my Smith & Wesson is to pry it from my cold dead hand or whatever. You've seen that bumper sticker? That's kind of the picture here. Hold fast to his grace. Hold fast to the gospel, Paul says. Hold fast to Jesus. How do we not quench the spirit? By holding fast to Jesus. That's how we do it. Paul says in Romans 2, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness that he's extended to you, of his forbearance and patience? Not realizing that God's kindness was intended to lead you to repentance, he says. But because of your stubbornness, get what he says here, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. That's heavy, folks. When his righteous judgment will be revealed. Don't show contempt to his kindness and his riches and his mercy and his patience. His kindness draws us to repentance. Hebrews 3 says, see to it, and this is a charge to all of us as members, as a body of Christ here today. He says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of us, none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Is that responsibility on that sinful person, person turning away? No, he says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you have a sinful, unbelieving heart that we're to fight for each other. We're to get into each other's lives. We're to spur each other on. We're to remind each other to cling to Jesus, to hold fast to him. He goes on to say, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ. We share in Christ for us. If indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end, as it has been said, today if you hear his voice, Do not harden your heart as you did in the day of rebellion. Some of you are hearing his voice this morning. Don't harden your heart. Run to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Do not harden your heart. Run to Jesus. It doesn't matter what you've done, what you said. Exposure, it doesn't matter. Run to Jesus. There is no sin, there is no embarrassment, there is no shame, there is no exposure that can mess you up if you are in the heart and in the hands of Christ. You might lose your reputation, you could lose your job, yes. But guess what? It matters more important that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life than your status as a job or a doctor or a lawyer or whatever, or your money. It doesn't matter. Your name needs to be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And if he is pursuing you and you feel him moving in your heart, do not harden your hearts, folks. That is a dangerous place to be. Rest. Fall before Jesus and say, I'm sorry. And I need you. Would you save me? I need your help. I want you, Jesus. Well, we have to close out this morning. We just had time to look at this one scene. I wish we could go into more of the other scene. But remember that this was a scene within a scene, right? This picture within a picture. And the gist of the picture within a picture, and this is a humbling takeaway for us this morning, is this. You see, the folks, Jesus' family thought they were insiders with Jesus, didn't they? They thought that they could come to Jesus and rescue him away from this house. And then the third story that we saw, that they stood outside. It's interesting that they were outside, Jesus' family. And it was actually Mary, his mother, (laughs) the mother of Jesus, and his brother standing outside of this house, sending word, hey, Jesus, you need to come. Jesus, come on. They thought they were insiders with Jesus, right? His mothers and brothers, they surely would be insiders because they were family, right? Family equals insiders, right? When you're family, you're family, right? Wrong. 
No, they weren't the insiders in this story. They were the outsiders. Mark makes that clear. They were standing outside. They were the outsiders in this story. Point is this. No family ties, your spiritual heritage and your spiritual pedigree do not matter in God's economy. The fact that your parents maybe grew up in a church or the fact that you're a Presbyterian, it doesn't matter. It cannot save you. There is no spiritual heritage or family connectedness that will save you. Only running to Jesus and asking him to save you can you be saved. So family can't save us. They were the outsiders when they thought they were the insiders. That's scary in and of itself. But then also the religious leaders, they weren't insiders per se, right? But they were prideful of their religious, religious heritage. They were prideful of their knowledge. They seemingly thought they were protecting God and his glory when in reality they were committing the greatest sin imaginable and they were the most religious of the people around. You see, it's not right religion and it's not right doctrine and it's not being right and pointing out others' wrongs that saves you. It's being with Jesus sitting at the feet of Jesus and then doing his will, trusting him with your life, all of your life, and then letting him save you and letting him rescue because only Jesus saves. We have to turn to Jesus. So my hope this morning is that you're an insider with Jesus, not because of your pedigree or your family or your connectedness, but because you've simply trusted him. Simply trusted him. And he is your only hope. And he is indeed your only salvation. Let me pray for this. Father, thank you for your word. This was some hard, kind of some hard stuff this morning. And um, Lord, I, I, my prayer is that none of us, oh God, Lord, none of us would ever be willfully resistant to your grace. And Lord, if we are, oh Father, by your grace, would you please, Lord Jesus, please intercede and stop us dead in our tracks. By your mercy and by your grace, would you arrest us? Would you set up every roadblock imaginable to stop us on our path? And then, Lord, we would not deny your grace and your love any longer. And then just like the son, that we would come to our senses, as the story of the prodigal son, it says that he came to his senses. God, even in your grace, you made him come to his senses, and he returned back, rehearsing the story that he was going to give to his father. And when he came back to his father, the father said, I don't want to hear your story. The story didn't matter. You're my son and I love you. Kill the fatty calf. Put a ring on his finger. And we're going to celebrate because my son that was lost is now found. God, it is pure grace. It is all of grace that we are saved. And the Lord, it is ultimately by your grace that we are sanctified and we are glorified. And that we will be with you. But Lord Jesus, if you're touching our heart this morning and there's, there's unconfessed sin and there's stuff going on in our lives, Lord, that we have been clinging to and trying to hide, Lord, would you, would you help us? Would you help us to confess that? Would you forgive us for our pride? Would you forgive us for our fear that, Lord, oh, life's going to be forever changed if I say this, if I confess this? No, it won't. You might lose a job. You might really have an angry spouse. Or who knows? But it doesn't matter. You say you love us. Help us to believe that and help us to treasure that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life because of what Christ did for us on the cross. So Lord Jesus, help us. Rescue us. We love you. And we pray these things for your glory and for our joy.